We welcome to our assembly. Uh, let me ask a question. How many friends do you have? Have you counted them? Uh, one thing you could do, I suppose, if you're on Facebook, is you could just check your Facebook. What's happening here? You could just check your Facebook and go down the list, right? Uh, those of maybe that are onto that social media, there's a list there. If you're on that, of all the people that have friended you, maybe there's some that used to be there that unfriended you, but there's a list there, the people that claim to be your friends, and there may be another list there somewhere, if you look for it, of people that want to be your friend. Uh, and they'll, want, they'll send you a request, uh, uh, make me your friend. And I wonder when I see all of that, and uh, I even look at it even from the standpoint of my, my own situation, whether not all those people are really my friends, or even all those who say they want to be my friends, really want to be my friends, or is there some other motive? Uh, in fact, I saw an advertisement the other day you could send in and a person would tell you how to get a thousand friends uh, on Facebook within a day or so. You could increase your list by a thousand friends. Um, and I, I wonder what, what's the, maybe what the motivation for that would be, but if you really wanted to find out, I suppose, how many friends you could get, that might be the way you could go. But are all friends the same? Even on your list, are they all the same? They all have the same, uh, maybe, a connection with you? Do they all care about you at the same level? All the degree of concern that's there? Some folks might be your friend because you share an interest with them. Uh, maybe you're into working on cars and they work on cars, or you, they like baseball and you like baseball, and therefore you connect at some activity that you uh, engage in. Maybe they're friends because you came across them years ago and you went to school with them and you've reconnected. Uh, maybe they're on your list because they're your family, because they live in the same house, or they have, you see, a connection there that's rather deeper. Some of those friends are close, some are not. And we, I think we recognize that distinction that there are some folks that really are, in terms of the real meaning of the word, uh, your friend, in the sense that they would do whatever they need to do to help you. They would be there when maybe uh, things were really tough. And that's things, something we learn about friendship maybe as we grow older. I can remember thinking in maybe in high school or those middle school days, they're always so uh, tumultuous that uh, if this person would just be my friend, my life would just be perfect. And, uh, and maybe they would, I would make that connection and you'd think this person's going to be my friend forever and I don't even know their name. Couldn't recall it. If I could look it up, I wouldn't recognize the name. But at that time, I thought that person means everything to me and maybe I thought that person... Uh, that I meant something to that person. Uh, but then times change. And we begin, as we grow older, recognize that associations and connections uh, that really matter are much deeper than we thought that they were. I want to take a look at a passage that we've looked at already. and will take you back to 2 Timothy uh, and uh, look at the, the, a passage in 2 Timothy chapter 1. But what about Paul's friend list? Is there any indication that we could find in Scripture of those individuals that Paul was close to? Sometimes we have, a, I think, a way of thinking about the apostles or uh, the people that, that are in the biblical story as though they were different than us and that, that they didn't have the same type of connections that we have uh, or they didn't have the same type of concern. Did Paul care whether or not somebody was his friend? Uh, and if uh, he was to make a connection with someone, how would he judge the value of that connection? In the book of 2 Timothy, what we recognize is, is that the context of that writing, of Paul writing to Timothy, is his last days. 
at least that's the way I would look at the book. There are some who others maybe take a different approach as to when the book was written, but most take the position that Paul wrote the book of 2 Timothy as one of his last writings, or maybe at his last writing, and that he was in chains in a Roman prison for the second time. Uh, that what the book of Acts accounts to us in Paul's imprisonment at Rome was his first imprisonment, but as he anticipated, he was released from that imprisonment. But then after the biblical record closes in Acts, the historical biblical record closes in Acts, he was, he was arrested again and put in Roman prison. And that's from which uh, that is the context from him writing this second letter. And he was therefore awaiting, persecu- or awaiting execution. The climate concerning Christians had changed from the time that Paul was in prison the first time to now that he's in prison the second time. Nero had burned the city of Rome and and planted the charge of that on the Christians. And so Christians as a a group, uh, as what they considered to be a sect of Judaism, was hated and despised by many individuals in the empire. And certainly they had come under political persecution. And so for Paul to be in prison at that time for whatever the circumstances were that surrounded his arrest would have put him not only in a difficult physical circumstance but also a situation that would have been a very emotional circumstance as well of difficulty and maybe even a somewhat of a situation of stigmatism. According to tradition, and this is outside the biblical record, his final imprisonment took place in the well dungeon near the capital city of Rome and that it was by record simply a vaulted pit uh, where individuals were chained to the wall and that Paul's, if Paul was in that place it was not a very pleasant experience. In 2 Timothy chapter 4 he writes to Timothy and tells him to bring his cloak. Uh, he says try to come before winter. I think for the perspective that he wasn't sure he was going to be around after that but certainly he, tell, he, he would pre- present this position of urgency. And what would it have been like in terms of the emotional situation for Paul if that's if that is true of his predicament, and we're assessing that right, and if you were in that position, how would that affect you emotionally? Well, Paul may have experienced times of loneliness, and there may be some hints of that. In chapter in 2 Timothy chapter 4, in verse 11, he says, Only Luke is with me. And he seems to be, you see, disappointed in the aspect that some of his friends he was counting on to testify in his behalf had left him. You know that everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me, he says, including uh, Phygelus and Hermogenes, and that's, that's from the passage that we read even this morning. One of his faithful traveling companions, Demas, had forsaken him going back to the world. And so Paul presents here in several lines of Scripture, personal references, what may very well have been an emotional environment, uh, very disappointing, and and, and maybe even to the standpoint of uh, disillusionment to some extent as to what was going on before him. I believe that Paul had continuing an absolute faith in God and that he did not abandon God, nor that he in any way way indicated in the things that he wrote, that he didn't think God was providing for him an opportunity even to teach the gospel in these difficult times. He unequivocally said that the Lord had not deserted him. But when Paul says that, when he comes out and says, everybody else deserted me, but the Lord is with me, how did he know that? Was there any empirical evidence that Paul could have accessed that would have made him understand that the Lord had not forgotten him and that he was certainly uh, someone whom the Lord was caring about in the context of this circumstance. Well, God provides, I think, assurances for his people in different ways and certainly uh, the Spirit revealing the Word of God to him and Paul being a vessel that would hold the Word of God and therefore teach it to others, no doubt, was a source of great encouragement. 
But I think one assurance that God provided came in the came in the form of people, came in the form of individuals who encouraged Paul in this difficult circumstance. And there's a lesson for us in that, that when we anticipate God's blessing and maybe we put our faith that God's going to not abandon us, that He's going to be with us, how do we think God's going to bring that about? How will He encourage us? How will He strengthen us? Well, one way I see this, I think, is to see the way that he did that for Paul. And the way that he did that for Paul is through a man whose name is obscure and maybe somewhat difficult for us to pronounce. He's mentioned briefly only twice in the New Testament. Yet to the Apostle Paul, this man, I think, became a very dear friend. He was maybe one of Paul's closest friends, and certainly he was a servant of the Lord. What Paul mentions about Onesiphorus would have us to understand that he made an impact for Paul, not only in terms of his ministry by being a part of that, but I believe as well in his ability to encourage the apostle in this very difficult time. In 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15, this is what Paul says, This you know, that all those in Asia have turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. The Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chain. But when he arrived in Rome, he sought me out very zealously and found me. The Lord grant to him that he may find mercy from the Lord in that day. And you know very well how many ways he ministered to me at Ephesus. Onesiphorus. We maybe have to think about how to pronounce that name. But the word itself, the name itself, means prophet bringer in the original language. And certainly when we think about that, that fits because Onesiphorus was someone who was profitable to Paul in his ministry and in the things that he learned to do and that he seemingly did do for Paul, that was borne out. We might even conclude if we were to use maybe modern vernacular that there's a sense in which Onesiphorus had a ministry alongside Paul. Now, I know that word is much misused and sometimes in, in today's society, particularly in religious circles, but the idea of being a minister is simply someone who is a servant in the use of that terminology in the Bible correctly. And so certainly Onesiphorus served Paul. In fact, that's precisely what he says, that he ministered to me, that he served. And I would suggest to you that the text reveals that Paul wasn't the only one that this fellow went around and served and helped out. So what can we learn from Onesiphorus? What is the lesson behind him? Sometimes I think this passage is, uh, is mis- these passages are misused, or at least they're used to come to the wrong conclusions about this man. In fact, uh, if you do a little looking into Onesiphorus, what you'll discover is that this particular passage, and Onesiphorus is used as an example by Roman Catholic scholars to say, to support this aspect of praying for the dead, the doctrine about purgatory and praying for those who are dead, to, uh, that, the, that they would be able to uh, survive purgatory, get through purgatory. One of the passages that's used in the New Testament uh, to supposedly support that is Onesiphorus, because the question is asked, did Paul pray for a dead man? And the Roman Catholic answer to that is yes he did because Onesiphorus is considered to be a person who is no longer alive when Paul writes 2 Timothy chapter 1 because he says that he asked for mercy for the household of Onesiphorus and he says that he asked for mercy for Onesiphorus on that day and they assume that that means the judgment day and so the idea that Paul is praying that a man that's already dead would find mercy on the day of judgment hence the Catholic doctrine that comes as a result of that that's a lot of assumptions Certainly it assumes the fact that he's dead. It's simply not stated that he's dead. That's simply taken uh, as uh, as a seeming implication from the text. Maybe he's simply not around. And so Paul prays for his household because he's not there with them at that time. Uh, That he's he's praying for his family, not only for himself, but his family. 
And then you have to come to the conclusion of what he means by that day. Uh, whether or not it conclusively means the day of judgment or that that's yet to come or whether he's talking about a day of trouble. Certainly that day would apply to the things that are coming upon uh, the Christians in the first century and the destruction of Jerusalem and even the days in which Rome would rise its head against Christians themselves certainly could be implied in that use. But I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that. You might research that and look at it yourself. But I think what, the point I wanted to make is that we need to get out of this passage, I think, what's really what, what's really here for us. And why is Onesphorus mentioned? Why are many of the persons that are mentioned, look at the end of the book of Romans, and Paul mentions several different individuals that he's acquainted with. Are those just personal references that are thrown out there? Certainly they were helpful to the Christians at Rome, to Paul, to, to Timothy as well, in trying to determine who these people are and how they will impact their ministry. But for us today, there's also some clear teaching about the type of people that both the apostle and the Lord would commend and the character and the activity of those individuals. And so what did Onesimus do that so endeared him to the apostle? What was it that would you put him in the position of being mentioned in this eternal text? Well, what the text indicates here is that if Onesphorus had a ministry, that it certainly could have been a ministry described as refreshment, because he says, May the Lord show mercy to the household of Onesphorus, because he often refreshed me, in verse 16. The word refreshed literally means to cool off. It means to brace up and revive something by the introduction of fresh air. Probably all been South Florida, you know what that means. You know, you're in a stuffy room and the, and the air conditioner's not working and somebody goes over and opens up a window and a cool breeze comes in and you're refreshed and you come in from mowing the lawn, you sit down, you turn on the air conditioner and let it blow in your face and the cool air, you see, sort of revives you. That's the idea and the implications of the word refreshed here. It would imply that someone who's refreshed needs it, or someone who's re- someone who's being refreshed in a situation you see where they uh, they are uh, dis- they may be discouraged or physically tired or exhausted, or in a situation where they're down, and so it gives a, a new surge of strength and good feeling to the individual who is refreshed. And so that's what Paul says that Onesphorus provided for him. Now, sometimes we might be tempted to just kind of pass over that or say, well, isn't that nice? You know, he, uh, he made him feel better. But the whole idea of refreshment that Onesiphorus provided here may very well have included the aspect of physical sustenance. Being in prison in the first century was not like being in prison today where the fellow is incarcerated and he's given uh, three meals a day and all his needs, physical needs are taken care of. If you were in prison in Rome or even in, uh, in other uh, Roman cities, and you were in the deep, certainly if you were in the deepest prison, uh, if you were going to get anything to eat, somebody had to bring it to you uh, because it wasn't a place where you would get food. So individuals that cared about them or, or wanted them would, give them would would bring them food. Now, they might give you enough to keep you alive, uh, but you weren't going to sustain yourself through anything other than what somebody else who cared about you brought you. And if that was Paul's situation, the idea of refreshment may very well have included this aspect of physical sustenance. But when we include all the other things that Paul no doubt was suffering at this time, and certainly the emotional element of it, for Onesiphorus to provide refreshment certainly could have meant to, to bring relief from the pressure and the loneliness and the discouragement that what was being refreshed was his spirit, his attitude, his demeanor. Maybe even to some extent you see his faith by what Onesiphorus had done. Now, I'm challenged by that when I think about the fact that 
Paul was ministered to by men like this, by individuals like this. Because I asked myself the question, when was the last time you refreshed anybody? When was the last time you really set out with the purpose of saying something to someone or doing something for someone that would revive their spirit, would come to them at a time in which they were having difficulty? And if you were going to be like Onesiphorus, how would you do it? Would you know how to refresh someone or to have a ministry of refreshment to those who are struggling? Now, Paul goes on to say here that I think in this, that Onesiphorus' actions were motivated because he was a person who was concerned about Paul, not just one time, but consistently concerned for the, Paul, for the apostle. His visit to Paul was not simply an isolated incident, that he repeated on several occasions this very thing, not only maybe to Paul, but to others. Again, look at verse 16. It says, He often refreshed me. So it wasn't where Onesiphorus just showed up one time and then didn't come back. It seemed to imply that he'd been involved not only in helping Paul on a continual basis, but possibly others as well, because it says in verse 18 that Timothy knew of all the things that Paul had done, that Onesiphorus had done, to help individuals and to help him while he was at Ephesus. So this, this fellow was concerned about individuals, not just one time, but on a continual basis. Now, how hard is that to do? Or maybe how rare is that among ourselves? It's not that we don't care. Sometimes it's that we don't care long enough. That we care when someone's need is right there in front of us, when it's for the moment. They go through some tragic event or something happens to them or they're sick, and so we know the need and we want to help at once, and maybe we do help at once, and we provide for them some refreshment at that time. But then time goes on, and the problem persists, and we often don't go back and consider that they continue to have that problem. Maybe we lose track of what's going on in their life, and what we find is we find ourselves caught in a cycle of inconsistent help to one another. And that proves, you see, sometimes to be a problem. Friends like Onesiphorus are there till the end. They stick around. The proverb writer says that there is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. That he's there whenever there is a need. And to do all of this, you see, Onesiphorus had to accept the risk that was involved. That if you're going to refresh another person, if you're going to minister in this need, then there is, even as there was in the case of Apostle Paul, there was you see some risk involved. This was a time, as we mentioned, where Christians were looked upon as criminals and Paul was in a position where certainly he could be viewed that way because he'd already been tried and put in prison. He'd been treated like one. If Onesiphorus was going to try to help Paul, he was going to have to associate himself with him and allow other individuals to make that association. What Paul says in verse 16 is, "...he was not ashamed of my chains." So he was concerned about me all the time and he was not deterred in any way by the fact that I was chained to a wall, that I was convicted as a criminal. And it may imply in that that there were others who were for him to say that. That there were other Christians whom Paul knew or other individuals that Paul even mentioned before who had abandoned him, who, were, who did abandon him because Paul wasn't out preaching the word but rather he was in prison. So being the Lord's servant, being someone who really does things for other people, means we have to be willing to go outside our comfort zone and to put ourselves at risk, not just physical risk, whatever that might involve. It probably doesn't involve much for us today. But the emotional risk of allowing other individuals to think about us what we don't want them to think about us. Oh, he's one of them. He does that. And what others think, you see about me becomes something that I have to be willing to deal with. 
Jesus accepted that risk over and over and over again. He accepted the risk that was involved to minister to those who in society had been marginalized and what most people thought would rightfully have been marginalized. Individuals like Zacchaeus and the woman at the well of Samaria, the woman in Simon's house who anointed Jesus' feet. All of those situations where Jesus could have backed away and not in any way tried to engage that individual or serve them in any way, there was a risk involved in doing all of that. And Jesus immediately met the confrontation that was involved in that. Now is there a lesson for me in that? Is there something there to which I am supposed to imitate? Jesus did not condone them in their sin nor participate with them if it was a sinful situation, but He had never allowed that oppor- the situation that they were in to keep Him from serving them. It was never an obstacle. He always accepted that risk. I think about in this context Jonathan, Saul, King Saul's son. You know, what we think about, remember about Jonathan, of course, is that he, uh, he and David were close friends, maybe the closest friends. And at a time when David didn't have a whole lot of friends, Jonathan was one who came from the other side. He was his enemy's son. And in 1 Samuel chapter 20, it tells us there that Saul found out that Jonathan was trying to help David. And he, his anger, it says, was he was aroused against his son. And he says to him, you are a son of a perverse and rebellious woman. He blamed it on their mother. Do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? He says, you're, I'm absolutely ashamed of you for what you're doing here. You've turned against your family. He goes on to say, don't you know as long as this David lives, you're never going to be king? You see, there was a, a risk involved when Jonathan befriended David. But what it tells us later on is that... The, Jonathan was so convinced that God was working through David that he was willing to accept that risk and that he went against his father's wishes and he even hid his association with David from Saul and he worked against Saul's purposes and told David where Saul was and what Saul was going to do. All of that accepting the risk. And so later on in chapter 23 he says, Do not fear for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. And it tells us there that he went into the woods and he strengthened David's hand in God. He strengthened his hand in God. That's what Onesiphorus did for Paul. He encouraged him. He refreshed him in a time of great distress. And he was willing to take the risk to do that. But also it tells us here that Onesiphorus was one of these fellows, you see, who seemed, who seemed to not be... Earth- easily discouraged or turn away from the objective. He, like many of us, saw the need, would be willing to respond to the need, maybe even to to accept the risk of doing that, but if it didn't work out, sometimes if it doesn't work out immediately or there's something that comes up, sometimes the first thing we do is we quit. What it tells us in verse 17, Paul says, when he was in Rome, he searched hard for me until he found me. The term hard there means with great difficulty or under arduous struggle. So Paul didn't just walk in and look up Saul in the phone book and find out what cell he was in there or call the jail and get his number. Paul was probably hidden somewhere and he was going to have to find out where Paul was. There was no communication. So it meant maybe going house to house or going from this person to that person, trying to find out people that might have known where Paul had been taken. And all along the time, all along that way, there may very well have been, you see, obstacles in the way. But if Onephorus was going to serve Paul, if you're going to really be serious about this, those things couldn't get in the way. He had to be persistent in all of that. 
And I, I think, again, this challenges me because sometimes I tend to recognize that I need to do something and that this is something that's good to do and I, well, I'm willing to do it, but then something comes up and I can't get the person on the phone or there's, I don't have an address or I don't have a way of getting in touch with them or something comes up. You know, They're not in town right now. And I just push it aside and it doesn't get done. If I have some free time, yeah, I'll make some contact with that person if something goes, if, if it all goes well. But if it doesn't, you see, that's what Onesiphorus, you see, that's what, what sets him apart. That's why he was a true friend to Paul, because he was persistent to the task. Sometimes we think that, uh, that if we simply invest the effort, and I'm not saying that we should not or that there's no value to it, but we think that if we invest the effort, somehow we've accomplished the purposes, and that's not necessarily so. Because what the challenge might be is not that can we do this easily, can we do this without any trouble, but whether or not we will persist and do it no matter what. And whether or not we'll continue to do what we need to do. So to be a use in the ministry that Paul would have, that God would have us to be, to be a minister of refreshment, may mean going the extra mile. It may be going beyond what we think we have to do. No challenges that we face, we may not have even been able to consider them yet, as it was, no doubt, for Onesiphorus when he came into the big city of Rome to find his friend and his apostle. But Onesiphorus was willing to pay the price, and that's what Paul mentions about him here. That's why he's, that's at least from my perspective, that's one reason he's in this record, is because he was that kind of person. And one last thing here before we close. One of the elements, I think, of a ministry of refreshment such as we see in Onesiphorus is that what the one person does fits the circumstance of the other person. But this isn't a general, I'm going to give a dollar to everybody or I'm going to do a good deed for everybody that I know. What Onesiphorus was doing was responding to a circumstance that Paul was in. And so if we're to be like Onesiphorus, if we're to be a true friend to another person, we have to be aware of the circumstances that other people are in. We have to be able to recognize that there are folks that are going through difficulties that maybe are unknown to us or things that, or things that they are experiencing and that they're struggling with that are unique to us or, or that maybe as well are more difficult than we think that they are. And at times it's not so much what we do as it is when we do it that makes refreshment, a ministry of refreshment, I think, effective. An act of kindness may seem small. It may seem as though that it's not much to do at all. Or we may not think that it'll accomplish much. And yet if it's done at the right time, if it comes, you see, to the circumstance that's there and it responds to that, it has great value. And that's something what I, I think about this aspect of what Paul says about Onesiphorus. Is that he refreshed me. What he did hit the spot. It was exactly what I needed at that time. And maybe as we talked about at the beginning of the lesson, that all those things that Paul says about his experience would help us to come to that conclusion. But certainly there was value in the kindness of Onesiphorus because it did fit the circumstance. So we look around and see people that maybe need some help in certain areas of their life and we're challenged with whether or not we'll, we'll help them at that time. A couple that's struggling with young children maybe need simply someone to babysit so they can get a night out and have some, t- have some time to themselves. A small thing, but if it doesn't come at the right time, if it doesn't fit the circumstance. An elderly person that's shut in, a card or a call, a visit, maybe the highlight of their week, it may be the best thing that happens to them is for someone simply to visit 
And I think there are a lot of individuals that go, that are in different circumstances, that are students of school, that are individuals that are that, that are having difficulty at work, that are going through physical problems, that have circumstances that, if we're really concerned about refreshing them, we'll come to know those circumstances and respond to them. So, who do you know? Who do we know? Well, if we know anybody, we ought to know each other, right? If we know anybody, now we know our neighbors and we know individuals in our community and people that we work with and that's good and there are opportunities to serve them. But if there's any arena by which refreshment can take place where things that are done persistently overcoming obstacles to really provide for individuals something for the moment, it ought to be among Christians in the body of Christ in the family of God because we ought to know one another enough to be able to serve one another. One last passage in Isaiah chapter 40. I know you're probably familiar with this. This is a powerful passage where Isaiah is issuing the promise of God to his people. He, that's God, gives power to the weak. And to those who have no might, he increases strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fail. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Now, I believe there's specific application of that to the time in which Isaiah was writing, but the principle seems to be that's applicable to every time is that God is able to strengthen His people in situations when they are weak, in situations where others are fainting and others are falling by the wayside. God's people are able to gain strength through what God provides for them so that those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They'll have wings like eagles and be able, you see, to run and not be weary. Now that's a pretty powerful promise, isn't it? There's a lot to be said for that. There's several sermons you could preach about the confidence we need to have in God. And maybe you can tell me stories and I can tell you stories where this particular passage seemed to be portrayed in what God did for you in your life. But there's a a question that comes to my mind that I think is fundamental to this. If we believe the promise, how do we believe God will fulfill that promise? How is it that God will strengthen me and give me wings like an eagle? How is it that He will refresh me in times of my great discouragement and when I'm down and when things are going bad, turn things around? Well, He can heal the sick. He can provide providentially for circumstances that will change so that if I lost my job, I might get a new job and might get a better job. But when it comes to the emotional element that's involved in facing the struggles that we face as Christians... Certainly one way that we can recognize that God fulfills His promises to those who put their strength in Him is He does that through people, other people. He does that through God's children and the association that they have with one another. Just like Onesiphus and Paul and Jonathan and David and you and I in our association one with another. Could it be that God expects that the, that the fulfillment of this promise for other people will come through me? That He's waiting for me to do something so that He can fulfill His promise that He's made, that He will not forsake His people, that He'll renew their strength in great difficulty. That doesn't mean that God's promises are dependent upon me. It, even if I deny Him, He's faithful to His promises, Paul says. But certainly it helps me to understand the, how God does things and how he works things and how much he expects me to be a part of that. The 27th chapter of Proverbs verse 17 says, Iron sharpens iron and one person sharpens another. So how do you get something sharp? Well, you've got to take something that's the same type of thing that it is and you've got to rub it against itself. And that's how you sharpen it. Iron sharpens iron. So 
if I'm going to get sharper, if I'm going to be strengthened, many times it comes from another person that that takes place and through their willingness to engage me in my life. The 18th chapter of Proverbs, verse 24, one last passage, a man with many friends may be harmed, but there is a friend who stays closer than a brother. And I read that passage, I thought about Paul. How many friends did he have? How many friends do you have? Paul probably had a bunch. I don't think he was on Facebook, but I think he probably had a bunch of friends. People that he'd known. But he had one, at least one, that made a real difference. So a person that has a lot of friends can be harmed, but a person that has a real friend that sticks closer to his brother has something of great value. And so I think about that too when I think about Jesus in the upper room with those disciples who were going to become so discouraged and so disappointed at what was going to happen to Jesus within the next few hours. And Jesus says, you're not just my servants, you're my friends. You're my friends. And I'm going to show you that I'm your friend by dying for you. Because what more could a friend do for another person than to give his life for them? So Jesus is my friend. And I know that because he refreshes me over and over again by what he's done for me. And that presents the example to you and I that we need to be friends to each other. Thank you for your attention tonight. Let's take out our songbooks. We'll sing together the song that Brother Charles has chosen. If you're not a child of God, we want to invite you to respond to the gospel of Jesus. It's only through the blood of Jesus Christ that you can have the spiritual blessings that are in Christ. And that blood is ascertained through your faith. You must believe and trust that Jesus died for you and that He rose again the third day. Putting your trust in Him, you're willing to turn in the direction that He would lead you. Away from sin and repent of those things that are wrong. Confess that Jesus is your Lord and be baptized in water for the forgiveness of sins. Will you do that? We'll help you do that. Let's stand and sing.